Folks, this chapter is a long-winded one. We're going to be meeting a character who does a, quite a bit of speaking and does speak quite slowly. Something that I just wanted to warn you about. As such, if this chapter gets to be simply a, a nap time you didn't consent to, then go ahead and you can skip on to the next chapter and I will have a pretty thorough review at the start of our next recording. So, yes, it's a long chapter. It's going to be even longer by the fact that it is uh, such a long-spoken character, but... Uh, if it's just too much for you and you don't want to really get left off anywhere, missing any big information, I will make sure to give a very thorough review at the start of our next chapter. How is everyone doing? I hope y'all are well. Oh, boy. Uh, Sander, Gwendog, Missy, Proteus, Exnilo, Orly Rose, and I want to give a very special welcome and thank you to Archer Kid. A very special welcome because, uh, of course... It's been a little while since I've seen you, Archer Kid. I'm glad to have you back. Uh, and a very special thank you to Archer Kid because uh, Archer Kid just rolled in and slung out 25 gift subs, which is big. <laughs> Archer Kid, thank you very much. Uh, total of 70 in the channel. Archer Kid, I appreciate that an awful lot. Thank you very much. Uh, but all of you, thank you, thank you so much for being here. Hey, y'all. It's going to be a really, really long stream today. You know how I usually like to do about twenty, uh, 12,000 words? Today's going to be almost 20. No, it's going to be more than 20, excuse me. As I was looking through, uh, we talked about this last week, but I kind of realized the best way to do this is to read these two really long chapters today. That, that much became very clear immediately. I still need to do a little bit of scouting forward, but even though this is going to be 20,000 words today... Gonna have to stay hydrated. Um, I'm probably gonna take two breaks. I'm just gonna be honest with you. I'll take a break after chapter one, and I'll probably take a break halfway through chapter two. Because chapter one is, I should say, chapter three, the first chapter of today. Chapter three is 7,600 words. Okay, cool, good. Chapter four is 12,787. So, probably gonna take two breaks today. Just gonna keep myself fresh. Let's go back and uh, let's talk about a bit of review. Everyone, thank you so much for joining me. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. We are about to embark into chapters three and four. And for that, we need to know what has happened in chapters one and two. Chapters one and two of The Two Towers. This is uh, the second book of the three in the Lord of the Rings core series. In the first chapters, we find Boromir is dead. Boromir is dead trying to defend... Uh, Pippin and Merry, as they uh, unfortunately have been carried by orcs off into the distance. We don't know precisely where they're heading, but after uh, sort of hearing the update from the dying Boromir, Aragorn has come to understand that Boromir is dead, Gandalf is gone as of the last book, um... We have a uh, uh, we have an elf and a dwarf, Legolas and Gimli. They are still with <laughs> very funny things happening over in Twitch right now, and I can't look at them because I have to pay attention to my review. Stop it, Nanu Nanu. Um, uh, <laughs> we are uh, uh, Aragorn leads um, uh, Legolas and Gimli out to find what has become of Merry and Pippin because upon realizing that Frodo has left, along with his very faithful companion Sam, Aragorn kind of realizes maybe it would be wise to let the party have run its course and to do what he can for Merry and Pippin rather than, you know, trying to 
uh, run after Sam and Frodo because he does think that Frodo probably made the right decision here. Um, as such, we have followed Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli as they run for miles and miles. 25 leagues, I believe it said. Which, let me find out precisely how far that is. 25 leagues. It might have been like 24. Okay, I don't give a darn about NCAA in miles. Not 25 leagues under the sea. Uh, 25 leagues is about 86 miles. And in kilometers? 138 139 kilometers, almost 140. So that is how far they have just run in like the course of, I want to say about four days, which means they're doing about 20 miles a day. That is brisk right there. So um, as they head out into the world, um, they run across the Rahirim. Uh, the Rahirim or are essentially the, the, the army of the horse folk, uh, armies of Rohan, and they are essentially patrolling around. Things don't seem to be going great in their neck of the woods, but uh, in spite of stopping Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli and asking them, hey, where are you going? What are you doing here? Our laws don't really permit you to pass through this place unapproved. In spite of this, Aragorn says, look, I am the king. I carry this sword. I am the person who was spoken of, and we have got a mission. Orcs have taken our friends, and I won't seek your approval. As such, Eomer... Uh, the sort of uh, commander of this contingent of the horse folk does indeed give them some horses, let them go through. Uh, but as we left Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, they've just had an encounter with an old, hooded, cloaked man dressed in white. There's only one white wizard that we know of, and Saruman is bad news. What of the hobbits they came to find? What has become of the Frodo? The Frodo, what? Oh, it's going to be a bad one today, gang. I can tell already. But what has become of the hobbits that Aragorn seeks? What has become of Merry and Pippin? It's time to find out. <laughs> Chapter 3 The Urukai Pippin lay in a dark and troubled dream. It seemed he could hear his own small voice echoing in black tunnels, calling, Frodo! Frodo! But instead of Frodo, hundreds of hideous orc faces grinned at him out of every shadow. Hundreds of hideous arms grasped at him from every side. Where was Mary? He woke. Cold air blew on his face. He was lying on his back. Evening was coming and the sky above was growing dim. He turned and found that the dream was little worse than the waking. His wrists, legs, and ankles were tied with cords. Beside him, Mary lay, white-faced with a dirty rag bound across his brow. 
All about them sat or stood a great company of orcs. Slowly, in Pippin's aching head, memory pieced itself together and became separated from dream shadows. Of course, he and Mary had run off into the woods. What had come over them? Why had they dashed off like that, taking no notice of old Strider? They had run a long way, shouting. He could not remember how far or how long, and then suddenly they had crashed right into a group of orcs. They were standing, listening, and they did not appear to see Merry and Pippin until they were almost in their arms. Then they yelled, and dozens of other goblins had sprung out of the trees. Merry and he had drawn their swords, but the orcs did not wish to fight, and had tried only to lay hold of them, even when Merry had cut off several of their arms and hands. Good old Merry. <laughs> then Boromir had come leaping through the trees. He had made them fight. He slew many of them, and the rest fled, but they had not gone far on the way back when they were attacked again. By a hundred orcs, at least, some of them very large, they shot a rain of arrows. Always at Boromir. Boromir had blown his great horns until the... Boromir had blown his great horn until the woods rang, and at first the orcs had been dismayed and drawn back. But when... No answer, but the echoes came. They had attacked more fierce than ever. Pippin did not remember much more. His last memory was of Boromir leaning against a tree, plucking out an arrow, and then darkness fell suddenly. I suppose I was knocked in the head, he said to himself. I wonder if poor Mary is much hurt. What's happened to Boromir? Why didn't orcs kill us? And where are we? And where are we going? He could not answer the questions. He felt cold and sick. I wish Gandalf had never persuaded Elrond to let us come, he thought. What good have I been? Just a nuisance. A passenger. A piece of luggage. And now we've been stolen and just a piece of luggage for the orcs. I hope Strider or someone will come and claim us. But ought I to hope for it? Won't that throw out all the plans? I wish I could get free. He struggled a little, quite uselessly. One of the orcs sitting near laughed and said something to a companion in their abominable tongue. Rest while you can, little fool, he said then to Pippin in the common speech, which he made almost as hideous as his own language. Rest while you can. We'll find a use for your legs before long. You'll wish you had got none before we get home. If I had my way, you'd wish you were dead now, said the other, and make you squeak, you miserable rat. He stooped over Pippin, bringing his long yellow fangs close to his face. He had a black knife with a long, jagged blade in his hand. Lie quiet, or I'll tickle you with this, he hissed. Don't draw attention to yourself, or I may forget my orders. Curse the Isengarders. He passed into a long, angry speech in his own tongue that slowly died away into mutterings and snarlings. Terrified, Pippin lay still, though the pain at his wrists and ankles was growing and the stones beneath him were boring into his back. To take his mind off himself, he listened intently to all that he could hear. 
There were many voices round about, and though Orc's speech sounded at all times full of hate and anger, it seemed plain that something like a quarrel had begun, and it was getting hotter. To Pippin's surprise, he found that much of the talk was intelligible. Many of the orcs were using ordinary language. Apparently, the members of two or three quite different tribes were present, and they could not understand one another's orc speech. There was an angry debate concerning what they were to do now, which way they were to take, and what should be done with the prisoners. There's no time to kill them properly, said one. No time for play on this trip. It can't be helped, said another. But why not kill them quick? Kill them now. That accursed nuisance and we're in a hurry. Evening's coming on and we ought to get a move on. Orders, said a third voice in a deep growl. Kill all but not the halflings. They are to be brought back alive as quickly as possible. That's my orders. What are they wanting for? asked several voices. Why alive? Do they give good sport? No. I heard one of them has got something. Something that's wanted for the war. Some elvish plot or another. Anyway, they'll both be questioned. Is that all you know? Why don't we search them and find out? We might find something we can use ourselves. That's a very interesting remark sneered a voice, softer than the others, but more evil. Might have to report that. The prisoners are not to be searched or plundered. Those are my orders. And mine, too, said the deep voice. Alive and as captured, no spoiling. That's my orders. Not our orders, said one of the earlier voices. We come all the way from the mines to kill and avenge our folk. I wish to kill, then go back north. Then you can wish again, said the, said the growling voice. I am Ugluk. I command. I return to Isengard by the shortest road. Is Saruman the master of the great eye? said the evil voice. We should go back at once to Logbors. If we could cross the river, we might, said another voice. But there are not enough of us to venture down to the bridges. I came across, said the evil voice, a winged Nazgul awaits us northward on the east bank. Maybe, maybe, then you'll fly off with our prisoners and get all the pay and praise in Logburs and leave us on foot to best as we can through the horse country. Now we must stick together. The lands are dangerous, full of foul rebels and brigands. Aye, we must stick together, growled Ugluk. I don't trust you, little swine. You've got no guts outside your own styles. But for us, you'd all have run away. We are the fighting Uruk, aye. We slew the great warrior. We took the prisoners. We are the servants of Saruman, the wise, the white hand, the hand that gives us man flesh to eat. We came out of Isengard and led you here, and we shall lead you back the way we choose. I am Ugluk, I have spoken. You've spoken more than enough, Ugluk, sneered the evil voice. 
I wonder how they'd like it in Lugbo's. He might think that Ogluck's shoulders needed relieving of a swollen head. I might ask where his strange ideas come from. Did they come from Saruman, perhaps? Who does he think he is, setting up his own with his filthy white patches? They might agree with me, with Krishna. Their trusted messenger. And I, Krishna, say this. Saruman is a fool. And a dirty, treacherous fool. But the great eye is on him. Swine, is it? How do you felt like being called swine by the muckrakers of a dirty little wizard? It's orc flesh they eat, I'll warrant. Many loud yells in orc speech answered him, and the ringing clash of weapons being drawn. Cautiously, Pippin rolled over, hoping to see what would happen. His guards had gone to join in the fray. In the twilight, he saw a large black orc, probably Ugluch, standing facing Grishnach, a short, crook-legged creature, very broad with long arms that hung almost to the ground. Round them were many smaller goblins. Pippin supposed these were the ones from up north. They had drawn their knives and swords, but hesitated to attack Ugluk. Ugluk shouted, and a number of other orcs of nearly his own size ran up. Then suddenly, without warning, Ugluk sprang forward and with two swift strokes swept the heads off of two of his opponents. Grishnak stepped aside and vanished into the shadows. The others gave way, as one stepped backward and fell over Mary's prostrate form with a curse. <laughs> Yet that had probably saved his life, for Ugluk's followers leapt over and cut down another with their broad-bladed swords. It was the yellow-fanged guard. His body fell right on top of Pippin, still clutching its long, saw-edged knife. Put up no weapons, shouted Ugluk, and let's have no more nonsense. We go straight west from here. And down the stair. From there, straight to the downs, then along the river, to the forest. And we march day and night. Is that clear? Now, thought Pippin, if it only takes that ugly fellow a little while to get his troop under control, I've got a chance. A gleam of hope came to him. The edge of the black knife had snicked his arm and then slid down to his wrist. He felt the blood trickling on his hand, but he could also catch hold of the steel against his skin. The orcs were already getting to the march again, but some of the northerners were still unwilling, and the Isengarders slew two more before the rest were cowed. There was much cursing and confusion. For the moment, Pippin was unwatched. His legs were securely bound, but his arms were only tied about the wrists, and his hands were in front of him. He could move them both together, though the bonds were cruelly tight. He pushed the dead orc to one side, and then, hardly daring to breathe, he drew the knot of the wrist cord up and down against the edge of the knife. It was sharp, and the dead hand held it fast. The cord was cut. Quickly, Pippin took it in his fingers and knotted it again into a loose bracelet of two loops and slipped it over his hands. And then he lay very still. Pick up those prisoners, shouted Ugluk. Don't play any tricks with them. If they're not alive when we get back, someone else will die too. 
An orc seized Pippin like a sack, put its head between his tied hands, grabbed his arms and dragged them down until Pippin's face was crushed against its neck. Then it jolted off with him. Another treated Mary in the same way. The orc's claw-like hand gripped Pippin's arms like iron. The nails bit into him. He shut his eyes and slipped back into evil dreams. Suddenly he was thrown onto the stony floor again. It was early night, but the slim moon was already falling westward. They were on the edge of a cliff that seemed to look out over a sea of pale mist. There was a sound of water falling nearby. The scouts have come back at last, said an orc close at hand. Well, what did you discover? growled the voice of Ugluk. Only a single horseman, and he made off westward. All's clear now. Now, I dare say. But how long? You fools, you should have shot him. He'll raise the alarm. Of course, those breeders will hear of us by morning. Now we'll have to leg it double quick. A shadow bent over Pippin. It was Ugluk. Sit up, said the orc. My lads are tired of logging you about. We've got to climb down, and you must use your legs. We help you now. No crying out, no trying to escape. We have ways of paying for tricks you won't like though they won't spoil your usefulness to the master. He cut the thongs round Pippin's legs and ankles, picked him up by his hair and stood him on his feet. Pippin fell down and Ugluk dragged him up by his hair again. Several orcs laughed. (laughs) Ugluk thrust a flask between his teeth and poured some burning liquid down his throat. He felt a hot, fierce glow flow through him. The pain in his legs and ankles vanished. He could stand. No, for the other, said Ugluk. Pippin saw him go to Mary, who was lying close by, and kick him. Mary groaned. Seizing him roughly, Ugluk pulled him up into a sitting position and tore the bandage off his head. Then he smeared the wound with some dark stuff out of a small wooden box. Mary cried out and struggled wildly. The orcs clapped and hooted. Can't take his medicine, they jeered. <laughs> Does it know what's good for him? Ah, we'll have fun with him later. But at that moment, Ugluk was not engaged in sport. He needed speed and had to humor unwilling followers. He was healing Mary in orc fashion, and his treatment worked swiftly. When he had forced a drink from his flask down the hobbit's throat, cut the leg bonds, and dragged him to his feet, Mary stood up looking pale, but grim and defiant, and very much alive. The gash in his forehead gave him no more trouble, but he bore a brown scar to the end of his days. "'Hello, Pippin,' he said. "'So, you've come on this little expedition, too. Where do we get bed and breakfast?' "'Oh, then,' said Ugluk, "'none of that. Hold your tongues. No talk to one another.' Any trouble will get reported at the other end, and he'll know how to pay you. You'll get bed and breakfast all right, more than you can stomach! The orc band began to descend a narrow ravine leading down into the misty plain below. Mary and Pippin, separated by a dozen orcs or more, climbed down with them. At the bottom they stepped onto the grass, and the hearts of the hobbits rose. Go straight on, 
shouted Ogluk. West and a little north. Follow Lugdosh. What are we going to do at sunrise? said some of the northerners. Go on running, said Ogluk. What do you think? Sit on the grass and wait for the white skins to join the picnic. We can't run in the sunlight. You'll run with me behind you, said Ugluk. Run, or you'll never see your beloved holes again. By the white hand, what's the use of sending out mountain maggots on the trip only half-trained? Run, curse you, run while night lasts. Then the whole company began to run with the long, loping strides of orcs. They kept no order. Thrusting, jostling, and cursing at their speed was very great. Each hobbit had a guard of three. Pippin was far back in the line. He wondered how long he would be able to keep up at this pace. He had had no food since the morning. One of his guards had a whip, but at present the orc liquor was still hot in him. His wits, too, were wide awake. Every now and again there came into his mind, unbidden, a vision of the keen face of Strider bending over a dark trail and running, running behind. But what could even a ranger see except a confused trail of orc feet? His own little prince and Mary's were overwhelmed by the trampling of the iron-shod shoes before them and behind them and about them. They had gone only a mile or so from the cliff when the land sloped down into a wide, shallow depression, where the ground was soft and wet. Mist lay there, pale glimmering in the last rays of the sickle moon. The dark shapes of the orcs in front grew dim and then were swallowed up. Oh, steady now, shouted Ugluk from the rear. A sudden thought leapt into Pippin's mind, and he acted on it at once. He swerved aside to the right and dived down out of reach of his clutching guard, head first into the mist. He landed, sprawled out on the grass. Halt! yelled Ugluk. There was for a moment turmoil and confusion. Pippin sprang up and ran, but the orcs were after him. Suddenly, some loomed right up in front of him. No chance of escape, thought Pippin. But there's a hope I've left some of my own marks unspoiled on the wet ground. He groped with his two tied hands at his throat and unclasped the brooch of his cloak. Just as the long arms and hard claws seized him, he let it fall. There I suppose it will lie until the end of time, he thought. I don't know why I did it. If the others have escaped, they've probably all gone along with Frodo. A whip-thong curled around his legs, and he stifled a cry. Enough! shouted Ogluk, running up. He's got a way to run yet. Make them both run. Just use the whip as a reminder. But that's not all, he snarled, turning to Pippin. I shan't forget. Payment is only put off. Like it! Neither Pippin nor Mary remembered much of the later part of their journey. Evil dreams and evil waking were blended into a long tunnel of misery, with hope growing ever fainter behind. They ran and they ran, striving to keep up with the pace set by the orcs, licked every now and again with a cruel thong cunningly handled. If they halted or stumbled, they were seized and dragged some distance. The warmth of the orc draft had gone. Pippin felt cold and sick again. Suddenly, he fell face downward in the turf. Hard hands with rending nails lifted and gripped him. 
was carried like a sack once more, and darkness grew about him. Whether the darkness of another night or a blindness of his eyes, he could not tell. Dimly he became aware of voices clamoring. It seemed that many of the orcs were demanding a halt. Ugluk was shouting. He felt himself flung to the ground, and he lay as he fell, till black dreams took him. But he did not long escape from pain. Soon the iron grip of merciless hands was on him again. For a long time he was tossed and shaken, and then slowly the darkness gave way. And he came back into the waking world and found that it was morning. Orders were shouted, and he was thrown roughly on the grass. There he lay for a while, fighting with despair. His head swam, but from the heat in his body he guessed he had been given another draft. An orc stooped over him and flung some bread in a strip of raw, dried flesh. He ate the stale gray bread hungrily, but not the meat. He was famished, but not yet so famished as to eat flesh flung at him by an orc, the flesh of he dared not guess what creature. He sat up and looked about. Mary was not far away. They were by the banks of a swift, narrow river. Ahead, mountains loomed. A tall peak was catching the first rays of the sun. A dark smudge of forest lay on the lower slopes before them. There was much shouting and debating among the orcs. A quarrel seemed to the point of breaking out again between the northerners and the Isengarders. Some were pointing back and away south, and some were pointing eastward. Very well, said Ugluk. Leave them to me, then. No killing, as I have told you before. But if you want to throw away what we come out to get, throw it away. I'll look after it. Let the fighting Urukai do the work as usual. If you are afraid of the white skins, run. Run! There's a forest! He shouted, pointing ahead. Get to it! It's your best hope. Off you go, and quick, before I knock a few more heads off and put some sense into the others. There was some cursing and scuffling. (laughs) Then most of the northerners broke away and dashed off, over a hundred of them, running wildly along the river toward the mountains. The hobbits were left with the Isengarders. A grim, dark band, fourscore at least of large, swart, slant-eyed orcs with great bows and short, broad-bladed swords. A few of the larger and bolder northerners remained with them. Now we'll deal with Krishnach, said Ukuk, but some of his own followers were looking uneasily southward. I know, growled Ukuk. The horse boys have got wind of us. But that's all your fault, Snaga. You and the other scouts ought to have your ear cut off. But we are the fighters. We'll feast on horse flesh yet, or something better. At that moment, Pippin saw why some of the troop had been pointing eastward. From that direction there now came hoarse cries, and there was Grishnach again. And at his back, a couple of score of others like him, long-armed, crook-legged orcs. They had a red eye painted on their shields. Ugluk stepped forward to meet them. So you've come back, he said. Thought better of it, eh? I've returned to see that orders are carried out and the prisoners are safe, answered Krishnach. Indeed, said Ugluk. Waste of effort. I'll see that the orders are carried out in my command. 
What else do you come back for? You went in a hurry. Did you leave anything behind? I left a fool, snarled Krishnach. But there were some stout fellows with him that are too good to lose. I knew you'd lead them into a mess. I've come to help them. Splendid! <laughs> Laughed Ugluk. But unless you've got some guts for fighting, you've taken the wrong way. Lugbars was your road. The white skins are coming. What happens to your precious Nazgul? Has he had another mount shot under him? Now, if you'd brought him along, that might have been useful. If these Nazgul are all they make out. Nazgul, Nazgul, said Grishnak, shivering and licking his lips as if the word had a foul taste that he savored painfully. You speak of what is deep beyond the reach of your muddy dreams, Sokolok, he said. How old they make out? Oh, one day you'll wish you had not said that. Ape! He snarled fiercely. You ought to know that they're the apple of the great eye, but the winged Nazgul. Not yet, not yet now. You won't let them show themselves across the great river yet. Not too soon. Therefore, the war. Another purpose is... You seem to know a lot, said Ogluk. More than is good for you, I guess. Perhaps those in Logbors might wonder how and why. But in the meantime, the Urukai of Isengard can do the dirty work as usual. Don't stand slavering there. Get your rabble together. The other swine are legging it to the forest. You better follow... You wouldn't get back to the Great River alive. Right off the mark! Now I'll be on your heels! The Isengarders seized Merry and Pippin again and slung them on their backs. Then the troop departed. Hour after hour they ran, pausing now and again only to sling the hobbits to fresh carriers, either because they were quicker and hardier or because of some plan of Grishnak's. The Isengarders gradually passed through the Orcs of Mordor, Grishnak's folk closed in behind. Soon they were gaining also on the northerners ahead. The forest began to draw near. Pippin was bruised and torn. His aching head was grated by the filthy jowl and hairy ear of the orc that held him. Immediately in front were bowed backs and tough, thick legs going up and down, up and down, unresting as if they were made of wire and horn, beating out the nightmare seconds of an endless time. In the afternoon, Ugluk's troop overtook the northerners. They were flagging in the rays of the bright sun, winter sun shining in a pale, cool sky though it was. Their heads were down and their tongues lolling out. Maggots! cheered the Isengarders. You're cooked! The white skins will catch you and eat you! They're coming! A cry from Grishnak showed that this was not a mere jest. Horsemen, riding very swiftly, had indeed been sighted. Still far behind, but gaining on the orcs. Gaining on them like a tide over the flats on folk straying in a quicksand. The Isengarders began to run with a redoubled pace that astounded Pippin. A terrific spurt, it seemed, for the end of a race. 
and they saw that the sun was sinking, falling behind the misty mountains. Shadows reached over the land. The soldiers of Mordor lifted their heads and also began to put on speed. The forest was dark and close. Already they had passed a few outlying trees. The land was beginning to slope upward, ever more steeply, but the orcs did not halt. Both Ugluk and Grishnak shouted, spurring them on into last effort. They won't make it yet. They will escape, thought Pippin. And then he managed to twist his neck so as to glance back with one eye over his shoulder. He saw that riders away eastward were already level with the orcs galloping over the plain. The sunset gilded their spears and helmets and gilded their pale flowing hair. They were hemming the orcs in, preventing them from scattering and driving them along the line of the river. He wondered very much what kind of folk they were. He wished now he had learned more in Rivendell and looked at more maps and things, but in those days the plans for the journey seemed in more competent hands. And he had never reckoned with being cut off from Gandalf or from Strider and even from Frodo. All that he could remember about Rohan was that Gandalf's horse Shadowfax had come from that land. That sounded hopeful as far as it went. How will they know that we're not orcs? He thought. I don't suppose they've ever heard of hobbits down here. I suppose I ought to be glad that the beastly orcs look like being destroyed. But I would rather be saved myself. The chances were that he and Mary would be killed together with their captors before ever the men of Rohan were aware of them. A few of the riders appeared to be bowmen, skilled at shooting from a running horse. Running swiftly into range, they shot arrows at the orcs that straggled behind, and several of them fell. Then the riders wheeled away out of the range of the many answering bows of their enemies who shot wildly, not daring to halt. This happened many times, and on one occasion arrows fell among the Isengarders. One of them, just in front of Pippin, stumbled and did not get up again. Night came down without riders closing in for battle. Many orcs had fallen, but fully two hundred remained. In the early darkness the orcs came to a hillock. The eaves of the forest were very near, probably no more than three furlongs away, but they could go no further. The horsemen had encircled them. A small band disobeyed Ugluk's command and ran on toward the forest. Only three returned. Well, uh, here we are, sneered Krishnach. Fine leadership. I hope the great Ugluk will lead us out again. Put the halflings down, ordered Ugluk, taking no notice of Grishnak. You, Lugos, get two others and stand guard over them. They're not to be killed unless the filthy watchkins break through. Understand? As long as I'm alive, I want them. But they are not to cry out and they're not to be rescued. Bind their legs. The last part of the order was carried out mercilessly. But Pippin found that for the first time he was close to Merry. The orcs were making a great deal of noise, shouting and clashing their weapons, and the hobbits managed to whisper together for a while. I don't like much of this, said Merry. I feel nearly done in. Don't think I could crawl far away, even if I was free. <gasps> Lembus, whispered Pippin. Lembus, I've got some, have you? I don't think they've taken away anything but our swords. Yes, I've got a packet in my pocket, answered Mary. But it must be better to crumbs. Anyway, I 
can't put my mouth in my pocket. You don't have to. I've... But just then a savage kick warned Pippin that the noise had died down and the guards were watchful. The night was cold and still. All round the knoll on which the orcs were gathered, little watchfires sprang up, golden red in the darkness, a complete ring of them. They were within a long bowshot, but the riders did not show themselves against the light, and the orcs wasted many arrows shooting at the fires until Ugluk stopped them. The riders made no sound. Later in the night, when the moon came up out of the mist, then occasionally they could be seen, shadowy shapes that glinted now and again in the white light as they moved in ceaseless patrol. They'll wait for the sun, curse them, growled one of the guards. I know we get together and charge through. What's old O'Crook think he's doing, I should like to know. I dare say you would, snarled O'Glook, stepping up from behind. Meaning I don't think at all, eh? Curse you! You're as bad as the other rabble, the maggots and the apes of Logbors. No good trying to charge with them. They would just squeal and bolt, and there are more than enough of these filthy horseboys to mop up our lot on the flat. There's only one thing those maggots can do. They can see like gimlets in the dark. But these white skins have better night eyes than most men, from all I've heard. And don't forget their horses. They can see the night breeze, or so it said. Still, there's one thing the fine fellows don't know. Maukur and these lads are in the forest, and they should turn up any time now. Ugluk's words were enough, apparently, to satisfy the Isengarders, but the other orcs were both dispirited and rebellious. They posted a few watchers, but most of them lay on the ground, resting in the pleasant darkness. It did indeed become very dark again, for the moon passed away westward into a thick cloud, and Pippin could not see anything for a few feet away. The fires brought no light to the hillock. The riders were not, however, content merely to wait for dawn and let their enemies rest. A sudden outcry on the east side of the knoll showed that something was wrong. It seemed that some of the men had ridden in close, slipped off their horses, crawled to the edge of the camp, and killed several orcs, and then faded away again. Ugluk dashed off to stop a stampede. Mary and Pippin sat up. Their guards, Isengarders, had gone with Ugluk. But if the hobbits had any thought of escape, it was soon dashed. A long, hairy arm took each of them by the neck and drew them in close. Dimly, they were aware of Grishnok's great head and hideous face between them. His foul breath was on their cheeks. He began to paw them and feel them. Pippin shuddered as cold, hard fingers groped down his back. Well, my little ones, said Grishnak in a soft whisper, enjoying your nice rest. Or not? A little awkwardly placed, perhaps, swords and whips on one side and nasty spears on the other. Little people should not meddle in affairs that are too big for them. His fingers continued to grope. There was a light like a pale but hot fire behind his eyes. The thought came suddenly into Pippin's mind, as if caught direct from an urgent thought of his enemy. 
Krishna knows about the ring. He's searching for it while Ugly is busy. He probably wants it for himself. Cold fear was in Pippin's heart, and yet, at the same time, he was wondering what he could do to make use of Krishnak's desire. I don't think you'll find it that way, he whispered. It's not easy to find. Find it, said Krishnak. His fingers stopped crawling and gripped on Pippin's shoulder. Find what? What are you talking about, little one? For a moment, Pippin was silent. Then suddenly, in the darkness, he made a noise in his throat. Call! Call him! Nothing, my precious, he added. The hobbits felt Krishnak's fingers twitch. <laughs> hissed the hob, hissed the goblin soft, the goblin, excuse me, hissed the goblin softly. That's what it means, is it? Oh, very, very dangerous, my little ones. Perhaps, said Mary, now alert and aware of Pippin's guess, perhaps, and... Not only for us. Still, you know your own business best. Do you want it or not? And what would you give for it? Do I want it? Do I want it? Said Krishnak, as if puzzled, but his arms were trembling. What would I give for it? What do you mean? We mean, said Pippin, choosing his words carefully, that it's, it's no good groping in the dark. We could save you some time and trouble, but... You must untie our legs first, or we'll do nothing and say nothing. My dear, tender little fools, hissed Krishnak, everything you have and everything you know will be got out of you in due time. Everything. You'll wish there was more that you could tell to satisfy the questioner. Indeed you will. Quite soon. We shan't hurry. Inquiry, but dear, no. What do you think you've been kept alive for, my dear little fellows? Please believe me when I say it was not out of kindness. That's not even one of Ugluk's faults. I find it quite easy to believe, said Mary. But you haven't got your prey home yet, and it doesn't seem to be going your way, whatever happens. If we come to Isengard, it won't be the great Krishnak that benefits. Saruman will take all that he can find. If you want anything for yourself, now's the time to do a deal. Krishnak began to lose his temper. The name of Saruman seemed specially to enrage him. Time was passing and the disturbance was dying down. Ugluk or the Isengarders might return at any minute. Have you got it? Either of you, he snarled. Gollum! Gollum, said Pippin. Untie our legs, said Mary. They felt the orc's arms trembling violently. Curse you, you filthy little vermin. He hissed. Untie your legs. I'll untie every string in your bodies. Do you think I can't search the bones? Search you. I'll cut you both to quivering shreds. I don't need the help of your legs to get you away. And have you all to myself... Suddenly he seized them. The strength in his long arms and shoulders was terrifying. 
He tucked them in, one under each armpit, and crushed them fiercely to his sides. A great stifling hand was clapped over each of their mouths. Then he sprang forward, stooping low. Quickly and silently he went till he came to the edge of the knoll. There, choosing a gap between the watchers, he passed like an evil shadow out into the night. Down the slope and away westward toward the river that flowed out of the forest. In that direction there was a wide open space with only one fire. After going a dozen yards he halted, peering and listening. Nothing could be seen or heard. He crept slowly on, bent almost double, then he squatted and listened again. Then he stood up as if to risk a sudden dash. At that very moment a dark form of a horse loomed right up in front of him. A horse snorted and reared. A man called out. Grishnak flung himself down to the ground, flat, dragging the hobbits under him, then drew his sword. No doubt he meant to kill his captives rather than allow them to be escaped or rescued, but it was his undoing. The sword rang faintly and glinted a little in the light of the fire to his left. An arrow came whistling out of the gloom. It was aimed with skill or guided by fate and pierced his right hand. <laughs> he dropped the sword and shrieked. <laughs> there was a quick beat of hooves, and even as Grishnak leapt up and ran, he was ridden down and a spear passed through him. He gave a hideous, shivering cry and lay still. The hobbits remained flat to the ground, as Grishnak had left them. Another horseman came riding swiftly to his comrade's aid. Whether because of some special keenness of sight, or because of some other sense, the horse lifted and sprang lightly over them, but its rider did not see them. Lying covered in their elven cloaks, too crushed for the moment and too afraid to move. At last, Mary stirred and whispered softly, So far, so good. But how are we to avoid being spitted? The answer came almost immediately. The cries of Grishnak had roused the orcs. From the yells and screeches that came from the knoll, the hobbits guessed that their disappearance had been discovered. Ugluk was probably knocking off a few more heads. Then suddenly the answering cries of orc voices came from the right, outside of the circle of watchfires, from the direction of the forest and the mountains. Maurur had apparently arrived and was attacking the besiegers. It was the sound of galloping horses. The riders were drawn in their ring close around the knoll, risking the orc arrows so as to prevent any sortie, while a company rode off to deal with the newcomers. Suddenly, Merry and Pippin realized that without moving, they were now outside the circle. There was nothing between them and escape. Now, said Merry, if we only had our hands and legs free, we might be able to get away. But I can't reach the knots and I can't bite them. No need to, said Pippin. I was going to tell you, I've managed to get free my hands. These loops are only left on for show. You better have a bit of limbus bread first. He slipped the cords off his wrists and fished out a packet. The cakes were broken, but good, still in their leaf wrappings. The hobbits each ate two or three pieces. The taste brought back to them. The memory of fair faces and laughter and wholesome food in quiet days now far away. For a while they ate thoughtfully sitting in the dark, heedless of the cries and shouts of battle nearby. Pippin was the first to come back to the present. "'We must be off,' he said. "'Half a moment?' Grishnak's sword was lying close at hand, but it was too heavy and clumsy for him to use. So he crawled forward, and finding the body of the goblin, he drew from its sheath a long, sharp knife. With this, he quickly cut their bonds. "'Now for it,' he said. 
when we've been warmed up a bit, perhaps we shall be able to stand again and walk. But in any case, we'd better start by crawling. They crawled. The turf was deep and yielding, and that helped them. But it seemed a long, slow business. They gave the watchfire a wide berth and wormed their way forward bit by bit until they came to the edge of the river, gurgling away in the black shadows under its deep banks. Then they looked back. The sounds had died away. Evidently, Mauhur and his lads had been killed or driven off. The riders had returned to their silent, ominous vigil. It would not last very much longer. Already the night was old. In the east, which had remained unclouded, the sky was beginning to grow pale. "'We must get under cover,' said Pepin. "'We shall be seen. It won't be any comfort to us if these riders discover that we're not orcs after we're dead.' He got up and stomped his feet. "'Those cords have cut me like wires, but my feet are getting warm again. I could stagger on now. What about you, Mary?' Mary got up. "'Yes,' he said. "'I can manage it. Lambus does put heart into you. A more wholesome sort of feeling, too, than that heat of the orc draft. I wonder what I was made of. Better not to know, I expect. Let's get a drink and wash away the thought of it. Some water.' Not here, the banks are too steep, said Pippin. Forward now. They turned and walked side by side, slowly along the line of the river. Behind them the light grew in the east. As they walked, they compared notes, talking lightly in hobbit fashion of the things that had happened since their capture. No listener would have guessed from their words that they had suffered cruelly and had been in dire peril, going without hope toward torment and death, or that even now, as they knew well, they had little chance of ever finding friend or safety again. "'You seem to have been doing well, Master Took,' said Mary. "'You'll get almost a chapter in old Bilbo's book if I ever get a chance to report it to him. Good work. Especially guessing at that hairy villain's little game and playing it up to him. But I wonder if anyone will ever pick up your trail and find that brooch. I think I should hate to lose mine, but I'm afraid yours is gone for good.' I shall have to brush up my toes if I'm going to level with you. Indeed, Cousin Brandybuck's going in front now. This is where he comes in. I don't suppose you've got much better notion of where we are, but I spent my time in Rivendell rather better. We were walking down west along the Entwash. The butt end of the Misty Mountains is in front, and Fanghorn Forest. Even as he spoke, the dark edge of the forest loomed up straight before them. Night seemed to have taken refuge under its great trees, creeping away from the coming dawn. "'Lead on, Master Brandybuck,' said Pippin, "'or lead back. "'We've been warned against Fangon, "'but one so knowing will not have forgotten that.' "'I have not,' answered Mary, "'but the forest seemed better to me, all the same, "'than turning back into the middle of a battle.' "'He led the way under the huge branches of the trees. "'Old beyond guessing, they seemed. "'Great trailing beards of lichen hung around them, "'blowing and swaying in the breeze. "'Out of the shadows the hobbits peeped.' Gazing back down the slope, little furtive figures that in the dim light looked like elf children in the deeps of time, peering out of the wild wood in wonder at their first dawn. Far over the great river and in the brown lands, leagues upon gray leagues away, the dawn came, red as flame. Loud rang the hunting horns to greet it. The riders of Rohan sprang suddenly to life. Horn answered horn again. 
Marion Pippin heard, clear in the cold air, the neighing of war horses and the sudden singing of many men. The sun's limb was shifted, an arc of fire above the margin of the world. Then with a great cry the riders charged from the east. The red light gleamed on mail and spear. The orcs yelled and shot all the arrows that remained to them. The hobbits saw several horsemen fall, but their line held up on the hill, and over it, and wheeled round and charged again. Most of the raiders that were left alive then broke and fled, this way and that, pursued by one to the death. But one band, holding together to a black wedge, drove forward resolutely in the direction of the forest. Straight up the slope they charged toward the watchers. Now they were drawing near, and it seemed certain they would escape. They had already hewn down three riders that barred their way. "'We've watched for too long,' said Mary. "'There's Ogluk. I don't want to meet him again.' The hobbits turned and fled deep into the shadows of the wood. So it was they did not see the last stand when Ogluk was overtaken and brought to bay at the very edge of Fanghorn. There he was slain at last by Eomer, the third marshal of the Mark, who dismounted and fought him sword to sword. And over the wide fields the keen-eyed riders hunted down the last few orcs that had escaped and still had strength to fly. When they had laid their fallen comrades in a mound and sung their praises, the riders made a great fire and scattered the ashes of their enemies. So ended the raid, and no news of it ever came back either to Mordor or to Isengard. But the smoke of the burning rose high to heaven and was seen by many watchful eyes. There we are. Everybody, thank you so very much for watching. Like I said, this is going to be an extra long stream today, and so I'm going to take two breaks. I'm going to take one right now. Just I'm just, just going to probably sit here at my desk saying nothing, um, go fill up my water, that kind of stuff. Uh, but I just need to give my give the old pipes a rest. I got through that a little bit better than I was anticipating, frankly. I thought that went pretty well. Um, Y'all, thank you so much for being here. If you are wondering what comes next, well, I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to read essentially a chapter that is the length of a full stream. Uh, frankly, even even more so. <laughs> today's chapter, I th today's stream, I think, is going to be the longest, uh, the longest stream of any that I have done for the series thus far. I don't remember the very first one, but I don't think it hit 20,000 words. I don't think it did. We're just north of 20,000 words for this one. So, yes, we're going to be reading another chapter, and it is a long one. It's a big old long chapter. So, it is, this is an Anduin-length stream. Folks, thank you so very much for being here. Uh, JT, Gwendog. Gwendog says, sweet, another chapter. Yes, indeed. Tanisha says, just got here. How is everyone? I'm doing pretty well, Tanisha. How are you? Uh, pretty Spade says, mm, my brooch. But apparently that is the... Correct pronunciation. Um, I yeah, I'm, I'm look, I'm lost in it. Who knows? Um, JT says, and I guess Dom Monahan's voice is better for Mary than like, hey, Scoop, check it out, it's Gandalf like zoinks. 
Why? Why is it better? Why wouldn't that be good? I'll see y'all in about five minutes, and then we're going to come back and read the... I mean, flat, flat out, it is the longest chapter in this book. 12,000 words. I'll see you in just a sec. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. We're back into it. All right. I got to count out some page numbers really quickly to figure out where I'm going to take my second break. Um, second break might be a little bit, uh, a little bit more brief. We shall see. It depends on how sort of straining the, uh, well, this new voice is going to be. Uh, everyone, thank you very much for being here at the beginning. Who, everyone, thank you so much to those who were here at the beginning for helping me to, uh, to pick this new voice that we're going to be using. Um, and, uh, y'all, I hope you are enjoying this quite a bit. Uh, we did not really have a chatter break, but I guess I'll chuck one at you. Um, Mary and Pippin. What do they do now? There you go. Pretty simple chatter break <laughs> for this particular chatter. Um, but, like I said, we've got a ton we are trying to read today. Uh, essentially, imagine right now we're starting the stream. You can sort of imagine it like that. Um, because we've got about 12,000 words coming in chapter 4 here. So, a bit of review from chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapters 1 and 2 um, follows uh, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli as they uh, sort of try and understand what happened at when the group got separated uh, near Amon-Hen. Well, uh, Frodo and Sam went off in one direction. Uh, Merry and Pippin were carried off by orcs. Boromir died at the hands of the orcs, and Aragorn decides, well, Frodo, I think, made the right choice here, so we're going to do what we can for Merry and Pippin. We're going to hunt down those orcs and re uh, recapture our friends, save them from the or whatever fate the orcs might have in mind for them. Uh, that was chapters one and two. In chapter three, our first chapter of this evening, we uh, we we caught up with Merry and Pippin. We sort of saw what happened while they were gone, and essentially, it was just a long trek with the orcs. Uh, there were some disagreements. There were there, it seems like there is some fighting inside the orc ranks, and overall, it just sort of gave us a better picture that. Um, it's not necessarily that there is this one singular, single-minded giant army, but there are mountain tribes of goblins uh, 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 fighting alongside orcs from Isengard. And so, it is... Uh, There's a little bit more... Um, a little bit more fidelity to it. There's more nuance uh, than we might have at first realized, but there's also quite a bit of disagreement, and uh, the hobbits take this to their advantage as much as they possibly can, and then, during the last days of their trip, uh, suddenly there are horse riders on the horizon. They're getting closer and closer and closer, and then finally, in an all-night siege, um, which I think is a great set of scenes here um, that we don't get much of in the, uh, in the, the films, that's okay. I can understand why they were cut, but still, it's a pretty cool scene where you've just got this this orc camp and uh, you know working with these. It, it shows you how the the uh, riders of Rohan, the Rohirrim, are very strategic, right? They they circle up around them at night, and then they're just going to wait for the daytime for the most part. Uh, they set up a circle of watchfires around the orc camp so nobody can get away, uh, and then they just wait it out. For the most part, they send in a few attacks at night so the orcs can't get too much rest. Um, and then by the morning, basically all of the orcs are slain in order not to be slain themselves, 
Merry and Pippin decide to sort of make their escape and run off. They don't want to be sort of mistaken for orcs and killed by the Rohirrim. That wouldn't do very well at all. What has become of Merry and Pippin now that they are no longer in the clutches of the orcs? Are they going to be able to find friends again? Most of their friends are pretty far off, and even the ones who are closest by, Merry and Pippin have no idea where they are. So, off into the forest we go. Chapter 4 Treebeard While the hobbits went with as much speed as the dark and tangled forest allowed, following the line of the running stream, westward and up toward the slope of the mountains, deeper and deeper into Fanghorn. Hmm, I might have done that wrong already. Meanwhile, the hobbits went with as much speed as the dark and tangled forest allowed, following the line of the running stream, westward and up toward the slopes of the mountains, deeper and deeper into Fanghorn. Slowly their fear of the orcs died away and their pace slackened. A queer stifling feeling came over them, as if the air were too thin or too scanty for breathing. At last Mary halted. "'I can't keep going like this,' he panted. "'I want some air.' "'Let's have a drink at any rate,' said Pippin. I'm parched. He clambered on to a great tree root that wound down into the stream, and stooping, brought up some water in his cupped hands. It was clear and cold, and he took many draughts. Mary followed him. The water refreshed them and seemed to cheer their hearts. For a while they sat together on the brink of the stream, dabbling their sore feet and legs and peering round at the trees that stood silently about them, rank upon rank until they faded away into grey twilight in every direction. "'I suppose you have lost us already,' said Pippin, leaning back against the great tree trunk. "'We can at least follow the course of the stream, the ant wash, or whatever you call it, and get out again the way that we came.' "'We could, if our legs would do it,' said Mary, "'and if we could breathe properly.' "'Yes, it's all very dim and stuffy in here,' said Pippin. "'It reminds me somehow of the old room in the great place of the Turks, back away in the smiles at Tukpura. A great place. The furniture's never moved or changed for generations. They say the old Turk is lifting it year after year, while he and the room got older and shabbier together, and it's never changed since he died a century ago. And old Gerontius was my great-great-grandfather, and that puts it back a bit. But there's nothing to do with the old feeling of this wood. Look at all those weeping, trailing beards and whiskers of lichen, and most of the trees seem to be half-coloured with ragged, dry leaves that have never fallen. Untidy. Can't imagine what a spring would like here, if it ever comes. Still less a spring cleaning. But the sun, at any rate, must peep in sometimes, said Mary. Doesn't look or feel at all like Bilbo's description of Mirkwood. That was all dark and black and home of dark black things. This is just... just dim. And frightfully treeish, 
can't imagine animals living in here at all. Or staying for long. No, nor hobbits, said Pippin. And I don't like the thought of trying to get through it either. Nothing to eat for a hundred miles, I should guess. How are our supplies? Low, said Mary. We ran off with nothing but a couple of bare packets of Lembus, left everything else behind. They looked at what remained of the elven cakes. Broken fragments for about five meagre days, that was all. And not a wrap or a blanket, said Mary. We shall be cold tonight, whichever way we go. Well, we'd better decide which way now, said Pippin. The morning must be getting on. Just then they became aware of a yellow light that had appeared. Some way further into the wood, shafts of sunlight seemed suddenly to have pierced the forest roof. Hello, said Mary. The sun must have run back into a cloud while we were getting out of these trees, and now she's gone out again. Or else she's climbed high enough to look down through some opening. It's not far. Let's go and investigate. They found it was further than they thought. The ground was rising sharply still, and it was becoming increasingly stony. The light grew broader as they went on, and soon they saw that there was a rock wall before them, the side of a hill or the abrupt end of some long root thrust out by the distant mountains. No trees grew on it, and the sun was falling full on its stony face. The twigs of the trees at its foot were stretched out, stiff and still, as if reaching out to the warmth. Where all had looked so shabby and grey before, the wood now gleamed with rich browns and with smooth black greys of bark like polished leather. The boles of the trees glowed with soft green like young grass. Early spring or a fleeting vision of it was about them. In the face of the stony wall there was something like a stare. Natural, perhaps, and made by the weathering and splitting of the rock, for it was rough and uneven. High up, almost level with the tops of forest trees, there was a shelf under a cliff. Nothing grew there but a few grasses and weeds at its edge, and one old stump of a tree with only two bent branches left. It looked almost like the figure of some gnarled old man, standing there, blinking in the morning light. "'Up we go!' said Mary joyfully. "'Now for a brush of feth air, vegetation of Radagast the brown.' Now for a breath of fresh air and a sign of land. They climbed and scrambled up the rock. If the stair had been made, it was for bigger feet and longer legs than theirs. They were too eager to be surprised at the remarkable way in which the cuts and sores of their captivity had healed and their vigor had returned. They came at length to the edge of the shelf, almost at the feet of the old stump. Then they sprang up and searched round with their backs to the hill, breathing deep and looking out eastward. They saw that they had come some three or four miles into the forest only. The heads of the trees marched down the slopes toward the plain. There, near the fringe of the forest, tall spires of curling black smoke went up, wavering and floating toward them. "'The wind's changing,' said Mary. "'It's turned east again. It feels cool up here.' "'Yes,' said Pippin. "'I'm afraid this is only a passing gleam. It will all go grey again.' What a pity. The shaggy old forest looks so different in the sunlight. I almost felt like I liked the place. Almost felt like you liked the place. That's good. That's uncommonly kind of you, said a strange voice. 
Turn round and let me have a good look at your faces. I almost feel that I dislike you both, but do not let us be hasty. Turn around. A large, knob-knuckled hand was laid on each of their shoulders, and they were twisted round, gently but irresistibly, then two great arms lifted them up. They found that they were looking at a most extraordinary face. It belonged to a large, man-like, almost troll-like figure, at least fourteen feet high, very sturdy, with a tall head and hardly any neck. Whether it was clad in stuff like green and gray bark, or whether it was its hide, it was difficult to say. At any rate, the arms, at a short distance from the trunk, were not wrinkled, but covered with a smooth brown skin. The large feet had seven toes each. The lower part of the long face was covered in a sweeping gray beard, bushy, almost twiggy at the roots, thin and mossy at the ends. But at the moment, the hobbits noted little but the eyes... These deep eyes were now surveying them, slow and solemn, but very penetrating. They were brown, shot with a green light. Often afterward, Pippin tried to describe his first impression of them. One felt as though there was an enormous well behind them, filled up with ages of memory and long, slow, steady thinking. But their surface was sparkling with the present, like sun shimmering on the outer leaves of a vast tree or on the ripples of a very deep lake. I don't know, but it felt as if something that grew in the ground half asleep, you might say, or just feeling itself as something between roof dip and leaf dip, between deep earth and sky suddenly waked up and was considering you with the same slow care that it had given to its own inside affairs for endless years. <sighs> murmured the voice, a deep voice, like a very deep woodwind instrument. Very odd indeed. Do not be hasty, that is my motto. But if I had seen you before I heard your voices, I like them. Nice little voices. They reminded me of something I cannot remember. If I had seen you before I heard you, I should have just trodden on you, taken you for little ox, and found out my mistake afterward. Very odd you are, indeed. Root and Twink, very odd. Pippin, though still amazed, no longer felt afraid. Under those eyes he felt a curious suspense, but not fear. Please, please, he said. Who are you, and what are you? A queer look came into the old eyes. A kind of weariness. The deep wells were covered over. Answered the voice. Well, 
I am an ant, or that's what they call me. Yes, ant is the word. The ant I am, you might say, in your manner of speaking. Fangorn is my name, according to some. Treebeard, others make it. Treebeard will do. An ant, said Mary. What's that? But what do you call yourself? What's your real name? Oh, oh now, replied Treebeard. Oh, that would be telling. Not. So hasty, and I am doing the asking. You are in my country. What are you, I wonder? I cannot place you. You do not seem to come in the old lists that I heard when I was young. But that was a long, long Time ago, and they may have made no lists. <sighs> let me see, let me see. How did it go? <sighs> Learn now the lore of living creatures. First name the four, the free peoples, eldest of all, the elf children. Dwarf the delver, dark are his houses. Ent the earthborn, old as mountains, men the mortal. Master of horses. Beaver, the builder, buck, the leaper, bear, bee hunter, boar, the fighter, hound is hungry, hare is fearful. And the old stories, said Mary. Yet we've been about for quite some long time. We're hobbits. Why not make a new line, said Pippin. Half-grown hobbits, the whole dwellers. You can put us in amongst the four, next to men, the big people. Well, you've got it. 
Treebeard. That won't do. So, you live in holes. It sounds very right and proper. Who calls you hobbits, though? That does not sound elvish to me. Elves made all their old words. They began it. Nobody else calls us hobbits. We call ourselves that, said Pippin. Oh, come now. Not so hasty. You call yourselves hobbits. But you should not go telling just anybody. You'll be letting out your own right names if you're not careful. But we aren't careful about that, said Mary. As a matter of fact, I'm a Brandybuck. Myriadoc Brandybuck, though most people just call me Mary. And they were Took, Peregrine Took, but I'm generally called Pippin, even Pip. Hmm, but you are hasty folk. I see, said Treebeard. I am honoured by your confidence, but you should not be too free all at once. There are ends and ends, you know. Or there are ends and things that look like ends, but ends. As you might say, I'll call you Merry and Pippin, if you please. Nice names. For I am not going to tell you my name. Not yet, at any rate. A queer, half-knowing, half-humorous look came with a green flicker into his eyes. For one thing, it would take a very long while. My name is growing all the time. And I've lived a very long, long time. So my name is like a story. Real names tell you the story of the things they belong to in my language, in old Entish, as you might say. It is a lovely language, but it takes a very long time to say anything in it, because we do not say anything in it, unless it is worth taking a very long time to say, and to listen to. But now... And the eyes became very bright and present, seeming to grow smaller and almost sharp. 
What is going on? What are you doing in it all? I can see and hear and smell and feel a great deal from this, from this, this. Discord on a great organ. These orcs and young Saruman down at Isengard. I like news, but not too quick now. There's uh, quite a lot going on, said Mary. And even if we tried to be quick, it would take a long time to tell. But you told us not to be hasty. Ought we to tell you anything so soon? Would you think it rude, or if we asked you what you're going to do with us, and which side you're on? And did you know Gandalf? Yes, I know him. The only wizard that really cares about trees, said Treebeard. Do you know him? Yes said Pippin sadly. We did. He was a great friend, and he was our guide. Then I can answer your other questions, said Treebeard. I am not going to do anything with you. Not if you mean by that do something to you. Without your leave, we might do some things together. I don't know about sides. I go my own way, but your way may go along with mine for a while. But you speak of Master Gandalf as if he was in a story that had come to an end. Yes, we do, said Pippin sadly. The story seems to be going on, but I'm afraid that Gandalf has fallen out of it. Come now, said Treebeard. He paused, looking long at the hobbits. Oh, 
well. I do not know what to say. Come now. If you would like to hear more, said Mary, we will tell you, but it will take some time. Wouldn't you like to put us down? Could we sit here together in the sun while it lasts? He must be getting tired of holding us up. Tired? No, I am not tired. I do not get easily tired. And I do not sit down. I am not very bendable. But there, the sun is going in. Let us leave this, what you say you called it. A hill? suggested Pippin. Shelf? Step? suggested Mary. Treebeard considered the words carefully. Hill. Yes, that was it. But it is a hasty word for a thing that has stood here ever since this part of the world was shaped. Never mind. Let us leave it and go. Where shall we go? asked Mary. To my home. Or one of my homes, answered Treebeard. Is it far? I do not know. You might call it far, perhaps. But what does that matter? Well, you see, we've lost all of our belongings, said Mary. We've only got a little food. Oh! You need not trouble about that, said Treebeard. I can give you a drink that will keep you green and growing for a long, long time. And if we decide to part company, I can set you down outside my country at... Any point you choose, let us go. Holding the hobbits gently but firmly, one in the crook of each arm, Treebeard lifted up first one large foot and then the other, and moved them to the edge of the shelf. The root-like toes grasped the rocks. Then carefully and solemnly he stalked down from step to step and reached the floor of the forest. At once he set off with long, deliberate strides through the trees, deeper and deeper into the wood, never far from the stream, climbing steadily up toward the slopes of the mountains. Many of the trees seemed asleep, or as unaware of him as any other creature that merely passed by, but some shivered, and some raised up their branches above his head as he approached. All the while he walked. He talked to himself in a long, running stream of musical sounds. The hobbits were silent for some time. 
They felt, oddly enough, safe and comfortable, and they had a great deal of time to think and wonder. At last, Pippin ventured to speak again. Please, Treebeard, he said, can I show you something? Why did Caliborn warn us against your forest? He told us not to risk getting entangled in it. <sighs> did he now? rumbled Treebeard. And I might have said much the same if you had been going the other way. Do not risk getting entangled in the woods of Laurelindorenan. That is what the elves used to call it, but now they make the name shorter. Lothlorien, they call it. Perhaps they are right. Maybe it is fading, not growing. Land of the Valley of Singing Gold, that was it. Once upon a time, now it is... The dream flower. Ah, well. But it is a queer place and not for just anyone to venture in. I am surprised you ever got out and much more surprised that you ever got in. That has not happened to strangers for many a year. It is a queer land. And so is this. Folk have come to grief here. Ah, have they to grief. Lorelindorenan. Lindelorendor, Malinorlelion, Orne Malin. He hummed to himself. They are falling rather behind in the world, in there, I guess. He said. Neither this country nor anything else outside. The Golden Wood is what it was when Caliborn was young. Still, Tore Lilomea, Tumbale Morna, Tumbale Torea Lomeanor. That is what. They used to say, things have changed, but it is still true in places. What do you mean? said Pippin. What's true? The trees and the ants, said Treebeard. I do not understand. All that goes on myself, so I cannot explain it to you. Some of us are still true ent, 
lights and lively enough in our own fashion. But many are grown sleepy, going tree-ish, as you might say. Most of the trees are just trees, of course, but many are half awake. Some are still wide awake, and a few are, well, well, getting entish. That is going on all the time. When it happens to a tree, you find that some have bad hearts. Nothing to do with their wood, I do not mean that. Why, I knew some good old willows down the entrance long, long ago, alas. They were quite hollow indeed. They were falling all to pieces, but as quiet and soft-spoken as a young leaf. And then there were some trees in the valleys under the mountains, sound as a bell and bad right through. That sort of thing seems to spread. There used to be some very dangerous parts of this country. There are still some very black patches. Like the old forest away to the north, do you mean? asked Mary. Aye, aye, something like, but much worse. I do not doubt there is some shadow of the great darkness lying there still away north, and bad memories are handed down, and the trees are older than I am. Still, we do what we can. We keep off strangers and the foolhardy, and we train and we teach and we walk and we weed. We are tree herds, we old ents. Few of us are left now. Sheep get like shepherd and shepherd like sheep, it is said. But slowly, and never have long in the world. It is quicker and closer with trees and ants, and they walk down the ages together. For ants are more like elves, less interested in themselves than men are, and better at getting inside other things. And yet again, ants are more like men, more changeable than elves are, and quicker at taking the color of the outside, you might say. Or better than both, for they are 
stir, dear, and keep their minds on things longer. Some of my kin look just like trees now, and need something great to rouse them, and they speak only in whispers. But some of my trees are limb-lithe, and many can talk to me. Elves began it, of course, waking trees up and teaching them to speak and learning their tree talk. They always wished to talk to everything the old elves did. But then the great darkness came, and they passed away over the sea, or fled into far valleys and hid themselves and made songs about days that would never come again. Never again. I... Aye, there was all one wood once upon a time, from here to the mountains of Loon, and this was just the east end. Those were the broad days, times when I could walk and sing all day and... Hear no more than the echo of my own voice in the hollow hills. The woods were like the woods of Lothlorien, only thicker, stronger, younger. And the smell of the air. I used to spend a week just breathing room. Treebeard fell silent, striding along and yet hardly making a sound with his great feet. Then he began to hum again and passed into a murmuring chant. Gradually the hobbits became aware that he was chanting to them. In the willow meads of Tassarinan I walked in the spring. Ah, the sight and the smell of the spring in Nantasarion, and I said that was good. I wandered in summer in the elm woods of Oceleon. Ah, the light and the music in the summer by the seven rivers of Osir. And I thought that was best. To the beaches of Neldoreth I came in the autumn. Ah, the gold and the red and the sighing of leaves in the autumn in Tarna Neldoreth. And it was more than my desire. To the pine trees upon the highland of Dorthonion I climbed in the winter. Ah, the wind and the white 
darkness and the black branches of winter upon Orod Nathon. My voice went up and sang in the sky, and now all those lands lie under the wave, and I walk in Ambarona, in Tauramorna, in Andalome, in my own land, the country of Fangorn, where the roots are long and the years lie thicker than the leaves. In Tauramornalome. He ended and strode on silently. And in all the wood, as far as ear could reach, there was not a sound. The day waned, and dusk was twined about the boles of the tree. At last the hobbits saw, rising dimly before them, a steep, dark land. They had come to the feet of the mountains, and to the great green roots of the tall Metadras. Down the hillside, the young Entwash, leaping up from its springs high above, ran noisily from step to step to meet them. On the right of the stream there was a long slope, clad with grass, now gray in the twilight. No trees grew there, and it was open to the sky. Stars were shining already in lakes beyond the shores of cloud. Treebeard strode up the slope, hardly slackening his pace. Suddenly, before them, the hobbits saw a wide opening. Two great trees stood there, one on either side, like living gateposts. But there was no gate, save their crossing and interwoven boughs. As the old Ent approached, the trees lifted their branches, and all the leaves quivered and rustled. For they were evergreen trees, and their leaves were dark and polished and gleamed in the twilight. Beyond them was a wide level space, as though the floor of a great hall had been cut into the side of a hill. On either side... The walls sloped upward until they were fifty feet high or more, and along each wall stood an aisle of trees that also increased in height as they marched inward. At the far end, the rock wall was sheer, but at the bottom it had been hollowed back into a shallow bay with an arched roof, the only roof of the hall save the branches of the trees, which at the inner end overshadowed all but the ground, leaving only a broad open path in the middle. A little stream escaped from the springs above, and leaving the main water fell tinkling down the sheer face of the wall, pouring in silver drops like a fine curtain in front of the arched bay. The water was gathered again into a stone basin on the floor between the trees, and thence it spilled and flowed away beside the open path, out to rejoin the Entwash in its journey through the forest. Mm, here we are said Treebeard, breaking his long silence. I have brought you about seventy thousand Entstrides, but what that comes to in the measurement of your land I do not know. Anyhow, we are near the roots of the last mountain. Part of the name of this place might be Welling Hall, if it were turned into your language. I like it. 
He set them down in the grass between the aisles of the trees, and they followed him toward the great arch. The hobbits now noticed that as he walked, his knees hardly bent, but his legs opened in a great stride. He planted his big toes, and they were indeed big and very broad, on the ground first before any other part of his feet. For a moment, Treebeard stood under the rain in the falling spring and took a deep breath. And then he laughed and passed inside. <laughs> a great stone table stood there, but no chairs. At the back of the bay, it was already quite dark. Treebeard lifted two great vessels and stood them on the table. They seemed to be filled with water, but he held his hands over them, and immediately they began to glow, one with a golden and the other with a rich green light, and the blending of the two lights lit the bay, as if the sun of summer were shining through a roof of young leaves. Looking back, the hobbits saw that the trees in the court had also begun to glow, faintly at first, but steadily quickening, until every leaf was edged with light. Some green, some gold, some red as copper, where the tree trunks looked like pillars molded out of the luminous stone. Well, now we can talk about this again, said Treebeard. Well, well, now we can talk again, said Treebeard. You are thirsty, I expect. Perhaps you are also tired. Drink this. He went to the back of the bay, and then they saw several tall stone jars stood there with heavy lids. He removed one of the lids and dipped in a great ladle, and with it filled three bowls, one very large bowl and two smaller ones. This is an end house, and there are no seats, I fear, but you may sit on the table. Picking up the hobbits, he set them on the great stone slab six feet above the ground, and there they sat, dangling their legs and drinking in sips. The drink was like water. Indeed, very like the taste of the draughts that they had drunk from the Entwash River, the borders of the forest, and... Yet there was some scent or savor in them which they could not describe. It was faint, but it reminded them of the smell of a distant wood, borne from far away by a cool breeze at night. The effect of the draft began at their toes, and rose steadily through every limb, bringing refreshment and vigor as it coursed upward right to the tips of their hair. Indeed, the hobbits felt as though the hair on their heads was actually standing up, waving and curling and growing. As for Treebeard, he first laved his feet in the basin beyond the arch, and then he drained his bowl in one draft, one long, slow draft. The hobbits thought he would never stop. At last he set the bowl down again. <sighs> he sighed. Hmm. <sighs> Now we can talk easier. You can sit on the floor and I will lie down. That will prevent this drink from rising to my head and sending me to sleep. 
On the right side of the bay, there was a great long bed on low legs, not more than a couple of feet high, covered deep in dried grass and bracken. Treebeard lowered himself slowly onto this, with only the slightest sign of bending at his middle, until he lay at full length, with his arms behind his head, looking up at the ceiling, upon which lights were flickering, like the play of leaves in the sunshine. Mary and Pippin sat beside him on pillows of grass. Now tell me your tale, and do not hurry, said Treebeard. The hobbits began to tell him the story of their adventures ever since they left Hobbiton. They followed no clear order, for they interrupted one another continually, and Treebeard often stopped the speaker and went back to some earlier point or jumped forward asking questions about later events. They said nothing whatever about the ring and did not tell him why they had set out or where they were going, and he did not ask for any reasons. He was immensely interested in everything, in the Black Riders, in Elrond and Rivendell, in the Old Forest and Tom Bombadil, in the mines of Moria and in Lothlorien and Galadriel. He made them describe the Shire and its country over and over again. He said an odd thing at this point. You never see any, um, any ants around there, do you? he asked. Well, not ants. Entwives, I should really say. Entwives, said Pippin. Are they like you at all? Hmm, yes. Well, no. I do not really know now, said Treebeard thoughtfully. But they would like your country, so I just wondered. Treebeard was, however, especially interested in things that concerned Gandalf, and most interested of all in Saruman's doings. The hobbits regretted very much that they knew so little about him, only a rather vague report by Sam of what Gandalf had told the council. But they were very clear at any rate that Ugluk and his troop came from Isengard, and spoke of Saruman as their master. <laughs> said Treebeard, when at last their story had wound and wandered down to the Battle of the Orcs and the Riders of Rohan. Well, well, that is a bundle of news, and no mistake. You have not told me all. No, indeed, not by a long way. But I do not doubt that you are doing as Gandalf would wish. There is something very big going on. That I can see, and what it is maybe I shall learn in good time. Or in bad time. By root and twig, but it is a strange business. Up sprout a little folk that are not in the old lists, and behold, the nine forgotten riders appear to hunt them, and Gandalf takes them on a great journey, and Galadriel harbors them in Karaskaladon, 
and orcs pursue them all the leagues of Wilderland. Indeed, they seem caught up in a great storm. I hope they weather it. And what about yourself? said Mary. Hmm. I have not troubled about the Great Wars, said Treebeard. They mostly concern elves and men. That is the business of wizards. Wizards are always troubled about the future. I do not like worrying about the future. I am not altogether on anybody's side. Because nobody is altogether on my side, if you understand me. Nobody cares for the woods as I care for them. Not even elves nowadays. Still, I take more kindly to elves than to others. It was the elves that cured us of dumbness long ago, and that was a great gift that cannot be forgotten, though we have parted since. And there are some things, of course, whose side I am altogether not on. I am against them altogether, these... Again, he made a deep rumble of disgust. These orcs and their masters. I used to be anxious when the shadow lay on Mirkwood, but when it removed to Mordor, I did not trouble it for a while. Mordor is a long way away. But it seems that the wind is settling east and the withering of all woods may be drawing near. There is not that an old ent can do to hold back that storm. He must weather it or crack. But Saruman now, Saruman is a neighbor. I cannot overlook him. I must do something, I suppose. I have often wondered lately what I should do about Saruman. Is Saruman? asked Pippin. Do you know anything about his history? Saruman is a wizard, answered Treebeard. More than that, I cannot say. I do not know the history of the wizards. They appeared first after the great ships came over the sea. 
But if they came with the ships, I can never tell. Saruman was reckoned great among them, I believe. He gave up wandering about and minding the affairs of men and elves some time ago. You would call it a very long time ago. And he settled down at Angrenost, or Isengard, as the men of Rohan call it. He was very quiet to begin with, but his fame began to grow. He was chosen to be head of the White Council, they say, but that did not turn out too well. I wonder now if, even then, Saruman was not turning to evil ways. There was a time when he was always walking about my woods. He was polite in those days, always asking my leave. At least when he met me, and always eager to learn. I told him many things that he would never have found out by himself, but he never repaid me in kind. I cannot remember that he told me anything. And he got more and more like that. His face, as I remember it, I have not seen it for many a day. It became like windows in a stone wall, windows with shutters inside. I think... I now understand what he is up to. He is plotting to become a power. He has a mind of metal and wheels, and he does not care for growing things, except as far as they serve him in the moment. And now it is clear he is a traitor. He has taken up with foul folk. Worse than that, he has been doing something to them, something dangerous. For these Isengarders are more like wicked men. It is a mark of evil things that came in the great darkness that they cannot abide the sun, but... Saruman's orcs can endure it, even if they hate it. I wonder what he has done. Are they men he has ruined, or has he blended the races of orcs and men? That would be a deep evil. Treebeard rumbled for a moment as if he were pronouncing some deep, subterranean, entish malediction. 
Some time ago, I began to wonder how orcs dared to pass through in my woods so freely. He went on. Only lately did I guess that Saruman was to blame and that long ago he had been spying out all the ways and discovering my secrets. He and his foul folk are making havoc now. Down on the borders they are felling trees. Good trees. Some of the trees they just cut down and leave to rot. Orc mischief, that. But most are hewn up and carried off to feed the fires of Orthanc. There is always a smoke rising from Isengard these days. Curse him, root and branch. Many of those trees were my friends, creatures I had known from Nut and Acorn, many had voices of their own that were lost forever now. And there are wastes of stump and bramble where they once were singing groves. I have been idle. I have let things slip. I must stop it. Treebeard raised himself from his bed with a jerk, stood up and thumped his hand on the table. The vessels of light trembled and sent up two jets of flame. There was a flicker like green fire in his eyes, and his beard stood out stiff as a great besom. I will stop it, he boomed. And you shall come with me. You may be able to help me. You will be helping your own friends that way, too. For if Saruman is not checked, Rohan and Gondor will have an enemy behind as well as in front. Our roads go together to Isengard. We will come with you, said Mary. We'll do what we can. Yes, said Pippin. I should like to see the white hand of a throne. I should like to be there, even. Even if I could not be of much use. I shall never forget Uglock and the crossing of the Rohan. Good, good. Said Treebeard. But I spoke hastily. We must not be hasty. I have become too hot. I must cool myself and think, for it is easier to shout stop than to do it. He strode over to the archway and stood for some time under the falling rain of the spring. Then he laughed and shook himself, and wherever the drops of water fell, glittering from him to the ground, they glinted like red and green sparks. He came back and laid himself on the bed again, and was silent. 
After some time, the hobbits heard him murmuring again. He seemed to be counting on his fingers. He sighed. The trouble is that there are so few of us left, he said, turning toward the hobbits. Only three remain of the first Ents that walked in the wood before the darkness. Only myself, Fanghorn, and Fingless and Floodriff, to give them their elven names. You may call them Leaflock and Skinbark if you like that better. And of us three, Leaflock and Skinbark are not much use for this business. Leaflock has grown sleepy, almost treeish, you might say. He has taken to standing by himself half asleep all through the summer with the deep grass of the meadows around his knees. Covered with leafy hair he is. He used to rouse up in winter, but of late he has been too drowsy to walk far even then. Skimbark lived in the mountain slopes west of Isengard. That is where the worst trouble has been. He was wounded by the orcs, and many of his folk and his tree herds have been murdered and destroyed. He has gone up into the high places among the birches that he loves best, and he will not come down. If I could make them understand the need, if I could rouse them, we are not a hasty folk. What a pity there are so few of us. Why are there so few when you've lived here for so long in this country? asked Pippin. Have a great many of them died? No, no, said Treebeard. None of us have died from the inside, as you might say. Some have fallen in the evil chances of the long years, of course, and more have grown treeish. But there were never many of us, and we have not increased. There have been no endings, no children, you would say, not for a terrible long count of years. You see, we lost the Entwives. Oh, very sad, said Pippin. How was it that they all died? They did not "'Die,' said Treebeard. "'I never said died. "'We lost them,' I said. "'We lost them, and we cannot find them.' 
I thought most folk knew that. There were songs about the hunt of the Ents for the Entwives sung among elves and men from Mirkwood to Gondor. They cannot quite be forgotten. Well, I'm afraid that the songs have not come west over the mountains to the Shire, said Mary. Won't you tell us some more, or sing us one of the songs? Yes, I will, indeed, said Treebeard, seeming pleased with the request. But I cannot tell it properly, only in short, and then we must end our talk. Tomorrow we have councils to call, and work to do, and maybe a journey to begin. It is rather a strange and sad story, he went on after a pause. When the world was young, and the woods were wide and wild, the Ents and the Entwives, and there were Ent maidens then, ah, the loveliness of Fimbrathil, of Wandlim, the light-footed in the days of our youth. They walked together, and they housed together, but... Our hearts did not go on growing in the same way. The Ents gave their love to things that they met in the world, and the Entwives gave their thought to other things, for the Ents loved the great trees and the wild woods and the slopes of the high hills, and they drank of the mountain streams and ate only such fruit as the trees let fall in their path. And they learned of the elves and spoke with the trees. But the Entwives gave their minds to the lesser trees and to the meads and the sunshine beyond the feet of the forest, and they saw the slow in the thicket and the wild apple and the cherry blossoming in spring and the green herbs and the waterlands in summer and the seeding grasses in the autumn fields. Um, they did not desire to speak with these things, but they wished them to hear and to obey what was said to them. The Entwives ordered them to grow according to their wishes and bear leaf and fruit to their liking, for the Entwives desired order and plenty and peace, by which they meant that things should remain where they had set them. So the Entwives made gardens to live in, but we Ents went on wandering. And we only came to the gardens now and then, 
Then when the darkness came in the north, the entrives crossed the great river and made new gardens and tilled new fields and we saw them more seldom. Um, after the darkness was overgrown, the land of the entwives blossomed richly, and their fields were full of corn. Many men learned of the crafts of the entwives, and honored them greatly. But we were only a legend to them. A secret in the heart of the forest. And yet, here we still are, while all the gardens of the Entwives are wasted. Men call them the brown lands now. I remember it was long ago, in the time of war between Sauron and the men of the sea. Desire came over me to see Fimbrathil again. Very fair she was still to my eyes when I last had seen her, though little like the Entmaiden of old, for the Entwives were bent and browned by their labor their hair parched by the sun to the hue of ripe corn, and their cheeks like red apples. Yet their eyes were still the eyes of our own people. We crossed over Anduin and came to their land but we found a desert. It was all burned and uprooted, for war had passed over it, but the Entwives were not there. Long we called, and long we searched. And we asked all folk that we met which way the Entwives had gone. Some said they had never seen them, and some said they had seen them walking away west, and some said east, and others south. But nowhere that we went could we find them. Our sorrow was very great, yet the wild wood called and we returned to it. For many years we used to go out every now and again and look for the Entwives, walking far and wide and calling by their beautiful names. But as time passed, we went more seldom and wandered less far. And now the Entwives are only a memory for us, 
and our beards are long and gray. The elves made many songs concerning the search of the ends, and some of the songs passed into the tongues of men, but we made no songs about it, being content to chant their beautiful names when we thought of the Entwives. We believe that we may meet again in a time to come, and perhaps we shall find somewhere a land where we can live together and both be content. But it is foreboded that that will only be when we have both lost all we have now. And it may well be that the time is drawing near at last. For if Sauron of old destroyed the gardens, the enemy seems likely to wither all the woods. There was an elvish song that spoke of this, or at least so I understand it. It used to be sung up and down the great river. It was never an entish song, mark you. It would have been a very long song in entish. But we know it by heart and hum it now and again. This is how it runs in your tongue sings the end when spring unfolds the beechen leaf and sap is in the bough when light is on the wildwood stream and wind is on the brow when stride is long and Breath is deep and keen, the mountain air. Come back to me, come back to me, and say my land is fair. So sings the Entwife. When spring is come to garth and field and corn is in the blade, when blossom like a shining snow is on the orchard laid, when shower and sun upon the field with fragrance fill the air, I'll linger here and will not come. Because my land is fair, and sings the end, when summer lies upon the ground, and in a noon of gold, beneath the roof of sleeping leaves the dreams of trees unfold, when 
woodland halls are green and cool and wind is in the east. Come back to me. Come back to me and say my land is best. And sings the Entwife. When summer warms the hanging fruit and burns the berry brown, when straw is gold and ear is white, and harvest comes to town, when honey spills and apple swells, though leaves be in the west, I'll linger here beneath the sun, because my land is best. So sings the end. When winter comes, the winter wild that hill and wood shall slay, when trees shall fall and starless night devour the cloudless day, when wind is in the deadly east, then in the bitter rain. I'll look for thee and call to thee. I'll come to thee again. And sings the Entwife. When winter comes and singing ends, when darkness falls at last, when broken is the barren bow and light and labor past, I'll look for thee and wait for thee until we meet again. Together we shall take the road beneath the bitter rain. And both sing. Together we will take the road that leads into the west, and far away we'll find a land where both our hearts may rest. Treebeard ended his song. That's is how it goes. It is elvish, of course, light-hearted, quick-worded, and soon over. I dare say it is fair enough, but the Ents could say more on their side if they had time. But now I am going to stand up and take a little sleep. Where will you stand? We usually lie down to sleep, said Mary. We should be all right where we are. Lie down to sleep? Why, of course you do. Hmm. I was forgetting. Singing that song puts me in mind of old times. Almost, I thought, I was talking to young Entings, I did. Well, 
you can lie on the bed. I am going to stand in the rain. Good night. Mary and Pippin climbed onto the bed and curled up in the soft grass and fern. It was fresh and sweet-scented and warm. The lights died down and the glow of trees faded, but outside, under the arch, they could see old Treebeard standing, motionless, with his arms raised above his head. The bright stars peered out of the sky and lit the falling water as it spilled onto his fingers and head and dripped, dripped in hundreds of silver drops onto his feet. Listening to the tinkling of the drops, the hobbits fell asleep. They woke to find a cool sun shining into the great court and onto the floor of the bay. Shreds of high cloud were overhead, running into a stiff easterly wind. Treebeard could not be seen, but while Merry and Pippin were bathing in the basin by the arch, they heard him humming and singing as he came up the path between the trees. Good morning, Merry and Pippin. He boomed when he saw them. You sleep long. I have been many a hundred strides already today. Now we will have a drink and go to Entmoot. He poured them out two full bowls from a stone jar, but from a different jar. The taste was not the same as it had been the night before. It was earthier and richer, more sustaining and food-like, so to speak. While the hobbits drank, sitting on the edge of the bed and nibbling small pieces of elf cake, more because they felt like eating was necessary for breakfast than because they felt hungry, Treebeard stood, humming in Entish or Elvish or some strange tongue, and looking up at the sky. Where is Entmeat? Pippin ventured to ask. Entmeat? said Treebeard, turning round. It is not a place. It is a gathering of ends, which does not happen often nowadays. But I have managed to make a fair number promise to come. We shall meet in the place where we have always met. Derndingle, men call it. It is a way south from here. We must be there before noon. Before long, they set out. Treebeard carried the hobbits in his arms as on the previous day. At the entrance to the court, he turned to the right, stepped over the stream, and strode away southward along the feet of the great tumbling slopes where trees were scanty. Above these, the hobbits saw thickets of birch and rowan, and beyond them, dark, climbing pine woods. Soon, Treebeard turned a little way from the hills and plunged into deep groves, where the trees were taller, larger, and thicker than any that the hobbits had ever seen before. For a while, they felt faintly the sense of stifling which they had noticed at first when they ventured into Fanghorn, but it soon passed. Treebeard did not talk to them. He hummed to himself, deeply and thoughtfully. But Merry and Pippin caught no proper words. It sounded like...
and so on, with a constant change of note and rhythm. Now and again, they thought they heard an answer, a hum or quiver of sound that seemed to come out of the earth, or from boughs above their heads, or perhaps from holes in the trees. But Treebeard did not stop or turn his head to either side. They'd been going for a long time. Pippin had tried to keep count of the ant strides, but had failed, getting lost at three thousand, when Treebeard began to slacken his pace. Suddenly he stopped, put the hobbits down, and raised his curled hands to his mouth so that they made a great hollow tube. Then he blew or called through them. A great... <laughs> rang out like a deep-throated horn in the woods, and seemed to echo from the trees. Far off there came from several directions a similar... <laughs> was not an echo, but an answer. Treebeard now perched Merry and Pippin on his shoulders and strode on again, every now and then sending out another horn call, and each time the answers came louder and nearer. In this way, they came at last to what looked like an impenetrable wall of dark evergreen trees, trees of a kind that the hobbits had never seen before. They branched out right from the roots and were densely clad in dark glossy leaves like thornless holly, and they bore many stiff, upright flower spikes with large, shining, olive-colored buds. Turning to the left and skirting through this huge hedge, Treebeard came in a few strides to a narrow entrance. Through it, a worn path passed and dived suddenly down a long, steep slope. The hobbits saw that they were descending into a great dingle. Okay, now, is this truly a word that I'm going to read out loud to my friends here? Dingle, a deep wooded valley or dell. A dingle. There you are. Still can't open my mouth all the way. And I'm not done talking for him yet. Okay, where the heck was I? Well, I'm surely I was at the word dingle, wasn't I? Here we go. The hobbits saw that they were descending into a great dingle, almost as round as a bowl, very wide and deep, crowned at the rim with the dark, high, evergreen hedge. It was smooth and grass-clad inside, and there were no trees except three very tall and beautiful silver birches that stood at the bottom of the bowl. Two other paths led down into the dingle, from the west and from the east. Several ants had already arrived. More were coming down in other paths, and some were now following Treebeard. As they drew much nearer, the hobbits gazed at them. They had expected to see a number of creatures as much like Treebeard as one hobbit is like to another, at any rate to a stranger's eye, and they were very much surprised to see nothing of the kind. The Ents were as different from one another as trees from trees, some as different from one tree as to the other of the same name, but quite different in growth and history, and some as different from one tree kind from another as birch from beech, oak from fir. There were a few older ants, bearded and gnarled like hail, but ancient trees, though none looked as ancient as Treebeard. And there were tall, strong ants, clean-limbed and smooth-skinned like forest trees in their prime. But there were no young ants, no saplings. Together there were about two dozen standing in the wide, grassy floor of the dingle, and many more were marching in. 
At first, Mary and Pippin were struck chiefly by the variety that they saw, the many shapes and colors and differences in girth and height, the length of leg and arm, and in the number of toes and fingers, anything from three to nine. A few seemed to be more or less related to Treebeard, and reminded them of beech trees or oaks, but there were other kinds. Some recalled the chestnut, brown-skinned ants with large splay-fingered hands and short, thick legs. Some recalled the ash, tall, straight, gray ants with many-fingered hands and long legs. Some the fir, the tallest ants, and others the birch, the rowan, and the linden. But when the ants all gathered round Treebeard, bowing their heads slightly, murmuring in their slow, musical voices, they looked long and intently at the strangers. And the hobbits saw that they were all of the same kindred, and all had the same eyes. Not all so old or as deep as Treebeard's, but all with the same slow, steady, thoughtful expression, and the same green flicker. As soon as the whole company was assembled, standing in a wide circle around Treebeard, a curious and unintelligible conversation began. The Ents began to murmur slowly. First one joined, then another, until they were all chanting together in a long, rising and falling rhythm, now louder on one side of the ring, now dying away there and rising to a great boom on the other side. Though he could not catch or understand any of the words, he supposed the language was Entish, Pippin found the sound very pleasant to listen to at first, but gradually his attention wavered. After a long time, and the chant showed no signs of slackening, he found himself wondering, since Entish was such an unhasty language, whether they had got further than good morning. And if Treebeard was to call the roll, how many days would it take to sing out all their names? I wonder what is the Entish word for yes or no, he thought. He yawned. Treebeard was immediately aware of him. <laughs> ah, hey, my Pippin! he said, and the other Ents all stopped their chant. You are a hasty folk, I was forgetting, and anyway it is wearisome listening to a speech you do not understand. You may get down now. I have told your names to the Entmoot, and they have seen you, and they have agreed that you are not orc and that a new line shall be put in the old lists. We have got no further yet, but that is a quick work for an Entmoot. You and Mary can stroll about in the dingle if you like. There is a well of good water if you need refreshing away yonder in the north bank. There are still some words to speak before the moot really begins. I will come and see you again and tell you how things are going. He put the hobbits down. Before they had walked away, they bowed low. This feat seemed to amuse the ants very much, to judge by the tone of their murmurs and the flicker of their eyes, but they soon turned back to their own business. Mary and Pippin climbed up to the path that came in from the west and looked through the opening to the great hedge. Long tree-clad slopes rose from the lip of the dingle, and away beyond them, above the fir trees of the furthest ridge, there rose, sharp and white, the peak of a high mountain. Southwards, to their left, they could see the forest falling away down into a grey distance. 
There far away was a pale green glimmer that Mary guessed to be a glimpse of the plains of Rohan. I wonder where Isengard is, said Pippin. I don't know where we are, said Mary, but that peak is probably Matadras, as far as I can tell, as far as I can remember. The ring of Isengard lies in a fork or a deep cleft at the end of the mountains. It's probably down and behind this great ridge. There seems to be a smoke or haze over there, left to the peak, don't you think? What's Isengard like? said Pippin. I wonder what Ents can do about it anyway. So do I, said Mary. Isengard is a sort of ring of rocks or hills, I think, with a flat space inside and an island or pillar of rock in the middle called Orthanc. Saruman has a tower on it. There's a gate, perhaps more to come in the encircling wall, and I believe that there's a stream running through it. It comes out of the mountains and flows on across the gap of Rohan. It doesn't seem the sort of place for Ents to tackle. But I've got an odd feeling about these Ents. Somehow I don't think they're quite as safe and, well, funny as they seem. They seem slow, queer, and patient, almost sad, and yet I feel they could be roused. If that happened, I'd rather not be on the other side. Yes, said Pippin, I know what you mean. There might be all the difference between an old cow sitting and thoughtfully chewing and a bull charging, and that change might come on suddenly. I wonder if Treebeard will rouse them. I'm sure that he means to try, but they don't like being roused. Treebeard got roused himself last night and then bottled it up again. The hobbits turned back. The voices of the Ents were still rising and falling in the conclave. The sun had now risen high enough to look out over the hedge, and gleamed on the top of the birches, and lit the northward side of the dingle with a cool yellow light. There they saw a little glittering fountain. There they saw a little glittering fountain. They walked along the rim of the great bowl, defeated the evergreens. It was pleasant to feel the cool grass about their toes again and not to be in a hurry. Then they climbed down to the gushing water. They drank a little, a clean, cold, sharp draught, and sat down on a mossy stone, watching the patches of the sun in the grass and the shadows of the sailing clouds passing over the floor of the dingle. The murmur of the ants went on. It seemed a very strange and remote place, outside their world and far from anything that had ever happened to them. A great longing came over them to see the faces and hear the voices of their companions, especially for Frodo and Sam, and for Strider. At last there came a pause in the Ent voices, and looking up they saw Treebeard coming toward them, with another Ent at his side. <sighs> Here I am again, said Treebeard. Are you getting weary, or... Feeling impatient yet, hmm? Well, I am afraid you must not get impatient yet. We have finished the first stage now, but I have still got to explain things again to those that live a long way off. Far from Isengard and those that I could not get round to before the moot, and after that we shall have to decide what to do. However, 
deciding what to do does not take ends so long as going over all the facts and events that they have to make up their minds about. Still, it is no use denying we shall be here a long time yet. A couple of days, very likely. So, I have brought you a companion. He has an endhouse nearby. Bregalad is his elvish name. He says he has already made up his mind and does not need to remain at the moot. He is the nearest thing among us to a hasty end. You ought to get on together. Goodbye. Treebeard turned and left them. Bregalad stood for some time surveying the hobbits solemnly, then looked at them, and they looked at him, wondering when he would show any sign of hastiness. He was tall and seemed to be one of the younger ants. He had smooth, shining skin on his arms and legs, his lips were ruddy, and his hair was gray-green. He could bend and sway like a slender tree in the wind. At last he spoke, and his voice, though resonant, was higher and clearer than Treebeard's. Hey, hey, my friends, let's go for a walk! I'm joking, I'm joking. But it would be funny, wouldn't it, if he were just a real speed demon? Oh, my friends, let's go for a walk, he said. I am Bregalad, that is Quickbeam in your language, but it's only a nickname, of course. They've called me that ever since I said yes to an elder and before he had finished his question. Also, I drink quickly and go out while some are still wetting their beards. Come with me! He reached down two shapely arms and gave a long-fingered hand to each of the hobbits. All that day they walked about the woods with him, singing and laughing, for Quickbeam often laughed. He laughed if the sun came out from behind a cloud. He laughed if they came upon a stream or spring. Then he stooped and splashed his feet and head with water. He laughed sometimes at some sound or whisper in the trees. Whenever he saw a rowan tree, he halted a while with his arms stretched out and sang and swayed as he sang. At nightfall he brought them back to his house. Nothing more than a mossy stone set upon turves under a green bank. Rowan trees grew in a circle around it, and there was water, as in all ant houses, a spring bubbling out from the bank. They talked for a while as darkness fell in the forest. Not far away, the voices of the ant moot could still be heard going on, but now they seemed deeper and less leisurely, and every now and again one great voice would rise high and quickening in the music while all the others died away. Beside them, Bregalad spoke gently in their own tongue, almost whispering, and they learned that he belonged to Skinbark's people, and the country where they lived had been ravaged. That seemed to the hobbits quite enough to explain his hastiness, at least in the matter of the orcs. There were rowan trees in my home, said Bregalad, softly and sadly. Rowan trees that took root when I was an enting, many dark years ago in the quiet of the world. 
The oldest were planted by the ants to try and please the antwives, but they looked at them and smiled and said that they knew where whiter blossom and richer fruit were growing. Yet there are no trees of all that race, the people of the rose, that are so beautiful to me. And these trees grew and grew till the shadow of each was like a green hall, and their red berries in the autumn were a burden and a beauty and a wonder. Mm. Birds used to flock there. I like birds, even when they chatter and the ruin has enough to spare. But the birds become unfriendly and greedy and tore at the trees and threw the fruit down and did not eat it. The orcs came with axes and cut down my trees. I came and called them by their long names, but they did not quiver. They did not hear or answer. They lay dead. Oh, Orophon, Lassimiste Conimirie! O oh, rowan fair upon your hair, how white the blossom lay. O oh, rowan mine, I saw you shine upon a summer day. Your rind so bright, your leaves so light, your voice so cool and soft. Upon your head, how golden red the crown you bore aloft. O oh, rowan dead, upon your head, your air is dry and grey. Your crown is spilled, your voice is stilled forever and a day. Oh, Orofarnia, Lassimista, Carnimirie. The hobbits fell asleep to the sound of the soft singing of Pregalad that seemed to lament in many tongues the fall of the trees that he had loved. The next day they spent also in his company, but he did not go far from his house. Most of the time they sat silent under the shelter of the bank, for the wind was colder and the clouds closer and grayer. There was little sunshine in the distance. The voices of the ants at the moot still rose and fell, sometimes loud and strong, sometimes low and sad, sometimes quickening, sometimes slow and solemn as a dirge. A second night came, and still the ants held conclave under hurrying clouds and fitful stars. The third day broke, bleak and windy. At sunrise, the Ents' voices rose to a great clamor and then died down again. As the morning wore on, the wind fell and the air grew heavy with expectancy. The hobbits could see that Bregalad was now listening intently, although to them, down at the dell of his Ent house, the sound of the moot was faint. The afternoon came. And the sun, going west toward the mountains, sent out long yellow beams between the cracks and fissures of the clouds. Suddenly they were well aware that everything was going quiet. The whole forest stood in listening silence. Of course, the ant voices had stopped. What did that mean? Bregalad was standing up erect and tense, looking back northward toward Durndingle. Then with a crash came a great ringing shout. The trees quivered and bent as if a gust had struck them. There was another pause, and then a marching music began like solemn drums, and above the rolling beats and booms 
where welled voices singing high and strong. We come, we come with roll of drum, The Ents were coming. Ever nearer and louder, their song rose. We come, we come with horn and drum, tarum, Bagalad picked up the hobbits and strode from his house. Before long, they saw the marching line approaching. Ents were swinging along with great strides down the slope toward them. Treebeard was at their head, and some fifty followers were behind him, two abreast, keeping step with their feet and beating time with their hands upon their flanks. As they drew near, the flash and flicker of their eyes could be seen. Here we come with a boom! Here we come at last! Called Treebeard when he caught sight of Bregalad and the hobbits. Come join the moot! We are off! We are off to Isengard! To Isengard! The Ents cried in many voices. To Isengard! To Isengard, though Isengard be ringed and barred with doors of stone, though Isengard be strong and hard, as cold as stone and bare as bone, we go, we go, we go to war, and hew the stone, and break the door, for bowl and bow are burning now, the furnace roars, we go to war, to land of gloom, with tramp of doom, with roar of drum, we come, we come, to Isengard, with doom we come, with doom we come, with doom we come. So they sang as they marched southwards. Bregalad, his eyes shining, swung into line beside Treebeard. The old ant now took the hobbits back and set them on his shoulders again, so they strode proudly at the head of the singing company with beating hearts and heads held high. Though they had expected something to happen eventually, they were amazed at the change that had come over the ants. They seemed now as sudden as a bursting flood that had been long held back by a dyke. The ants have made up their minds rather quickly, after all, haven't they? Pippin ventured to say after some time, when for a moment the singing paused and only the beating of hands and feet was heard. Quickly! Yes, indeed. Quicker than I expected. Indeed, I have not seen them roused like this for many an age. We ants do not like being roused, and we never are roused. Unless it is clear to us that our trees and our lives are in danger. That has not happened in this forest since the wars of Sauron and the men of the sea. It is the orc work, the wanton hewing room. Without even the 
bad excuse of feeding the fires that has so angered us, and the treachery of a neighbor who should have helped us. Wizards ought to know better. They do know better. There is no curse in Elvish, Entish, or the tongues of men bad enough for such treachery. Down with Saruman! Will you really break the doors of Isengard? asked Mary. <sighs> we could, you know. We do not know, perhaps, how strong we are. Maybe you have heard of trolls. They are mighty strong. But trolls are only counterfeits, made by the enemy in the great darkness in a mockery of Ents, as orcs were of elves. We are stronger than trolls. We are made of the bones of the earth. We can split stone like the roots of a tree, only quicker, far quicker if our minds are roused. If we are not hewn down or destroyed by fire or blast of sorcery, we could split Isengard into splinters and crack its walls into rubble. Boom. But Saruman will try to stop you, won't he? Mm, uh, yes. That is so. I have not forgotten it. Indeed, I have thought long about it, but you see, many of the Ents are younger than am I by many lives of trees. They are all roused now, and their mind is all on one thing. Breaking Isengard. But they will start thinking again before long. They will cool down a little when we take our evening drink. Oh, what a thirst. We shall have. But let them march now and sing. We have got a long way to go, and there is time ahead for thought. It is something to have started. Treebeard marched on, singing with others for a while. But after a time, his voice died to a murmur and fell silent again. Pippin could see that his old brow was wrinkled and knotted. At last he looked up, and Pippin could see a sad look in his eyes. Sad, but not unhappy. There was a light in them, as if the green flame had sunk deeper into the dark wells of thought. Of course, 
It is likely enough, my friends, he said slowly. Likely enough that we are going to our doom. The last march of the ends. But if we stayed at home and did nothing, doom would find us anyway, sooner or later. That thought has long been growing in our hearts, and that is why we are marching now. It was not a hasty resolve. Now at least the last march of the Ents may be worth a song. I... He sighed. We may help the other peoples before we pass away. Still, I should have liked to see the songs come true about the Entwives. I should dearly like to see Fimbrithil again. But there, my friends, songs like trees bear fruit only in their own time and in their own way, and sometimes they are withered, untimely. The ants went striding on at a great pace. They had descended into a long fold of land that fell away southward. Now they began to climb up and up onto the high western ridge, the woods fell away, and they came to scattered groups of birch, and to bare trees where only a few gaunt pine trees grew. The sun sank behind the dark hill back in front. Gray dusk fell. Pippin looked behind. The number of the ants had grown. Or what was happening? Where the dim bare slopes that they had crossed should lie, he saw or thought he saw, groves of trees, but they were moving. Could it be that the trees of Fanghorn were awake, and the forest was rising, marching over the hills to war? He rubbed his eyes, wondering if sleep and shadow had deceived him, but the great gray shapes moved steadily onward. There was a noise like wind in many branches. <sighs> The Ents were drawing near the crest of the ridge now, and all song had ceased. Night fell, and there was silence. Nothing was to be heard save a faint quiver of the earth beneath the feet of the Ents, and a rustle, a shade of a whisper as of many drifting leaves. At last they stood upon the summit and looked down into a dark pit, the great cleft at the end of the mountains. Nan Kurnir, the valley of Saruman. Night lies over, Isengard.
Okay. A long chapter made so much longer by the fact that it is chock-a-block full of, of dialogue. Dialogue that is spoken by a very slow-speaking character. I have been streaming for four hours. I need to get out of here. My voice is going to collapse like a dying star or like a depressurizing spacecraft. I want to say thank you all very much for being here, folks. Gems uh, and Louise, of course, Jade, y'all, JT, Missy. Thank you all so much for being here. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do a quick little tag here on the end, even though I'm I'm pretty well tapped out. But I will tell you this. If I were trying to do the, the Treebeard voice, and I actually have done it for a one-shot that I ran in New Zealand. It was, y'all, it was super cool. I got a chance to run a one-shot on the back of my jacket in New Zealand. Uh, and I really want to thank my brother for trying to get that ginned up because it was like, I, I don't know, it's it's... It may not be the best one-shot I've ever run, but it was maybe the coolest thing I've ever done when running a one-shot, right? Just, like, on a trip, uh, I I was <laughs> I was running a one-shot for a bunch of zipline guides, um, and we did a Lord of the Rings one-shot that, that happened in Osgiliath, and um, I had an Ent in there because I wanted to really shake it up. Um, it was like a, it, it was like very much for, for fans of Lord of the Rings, but not necessarily fans who demand accuracy. Uh, but I got to run a, uh, I, I made the, the, the back of my leather, ja- back of my, uh, denim jacket. I've got painted up with a dungeon so I can run anywhere I go. Uh, and I did, I ran a little, um, uh, there's like sort of secret, uh, uh tunnels underneath Osgiliath. And so, uh, I ran that there. That was great. But I did do this voice. So, um, here is, uh, I'm going to first show you what it sounds like when I try to do the voice just on my own without any help, really trying to pull the voice off. Uh, let me see. Where are some good lines here? Hello, my cast. I'm almost done. It was like 20,000 words today instead of 12. Just two beefy chapters that I... There's no getting around it. Don't! No, she can see it without... <laughs> Did you watch the stream and hear me talk about it? Shh. She knows my face very, very well, so she can tell that my lips are all pursed up right now. I did talk to them about it. I mentioned it, but yeah, she she walks in here, she swings the door open, a grin slowly grows across her face, and she just starts going at me, wretched. Hey, I love you. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. No. I need you to go away. I need you to close the door and not look at me anymore. I'll be out in about five. Um, uh, let me see. Let me find some some good uh, <laughs> some some good lines here. Um, okay, here we go. Of course, it is likely enough, my friends, likely enough that we are going to our doom. The last match of the ends, but if we stayed at home and did nothing, Doom would find us anyway sooner or later. So, that's what it sounds like when I'm trying to do it. However, if I do that while also I've got the voice changer on, it sounds like this. Of course, it is likely enough, my friends. Likely enough that we are going to our doom. The last match of the Ents. But if we stayed at home and did nothing, Doom 
would find us again anyway, sooner or later. So, as you can hear, it makes it too much. So when I'm doing it with the voice changer, I have to actually change it, and it frankly sounds a lot more like a very lazy Gandalf. Of course it is likely enough, my friends. Likely enough that we are going to our doom, the last march of the Ents. But if we stayed at home and did nothing... Doom would find us anyway. Sooner or later. So, um, I hope that answers your question. Ooh, I can smell burgers out there. I hope that gets me a burger. That would be great. Army Freedom, um, hope that answers your question. Uh, so yes, if you're wondering about bassy voices, um, there's actually a, uh, there are, there's a section of your vocal cords that for me, it feels like it's just beneath my vocal cords, um, that your vocal cords themselves are these two little, um, uh, kind of strings. You can imagine them as rubber bands and they sit on either side of a tube. Um, like this, like like if you were to try and look down a tube and try to make rubber bands look like the number eleven, right? So they're sort of up there like this, but then then uh, you sort of sit your sit your vocal cords like this, and that vocal apparatus like this. Then down, and for like I said, for me it feels like it's just underneath the vocal cords. There's a section of my throat that I can rumble. So when I try to get down, if I try to hit my lowest note, it sounds like this. So that's about as low down as I go, but that's as low as I go with my vocal cords themselves, vibrating the vocal cords themselves. If I take the section of my of my vocal apparatus just underneath, like I said, it feels like that's where it is. I would love for... Um, um, a, uh, I'd love for a, a, a specialized doctor to tell me precisely what's going on. It feels like just underneath that, there's a section where if I sort of run air through it at a pretty violent, uh, <laughs> in a pretty violent way, um, I can go ahead and get this sound instead. Right, my last note ends there, and then... Um, and then there's another section that's actually weirdly above my vocal cords where I can go. So it all depends on what part of the throat I'm trying to manipulate. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it requires me to kind of crunch down on my on my the section of my vocal apparatus that sits on either side of my vocal cords. It doesn't feel like I'm doing it to the vocal cords themselves. This one. That may be the vocal cords themselves, just essentially sort of like loosened to the point where there are two uh, ropes flapping the strong breeze. But the one down that's actually vocalized, where I could... so Because this one... That was my attempt to go to a high note and then a low note and then a high note again. You can't really... Uh, you can't really give pitch to that one. You can give pitch to the other one. Um, that one, I think it's happening in a different part of my throat. So what does that mean? I don't entirely know, but that's what's up. Uh, like I said, a lot of that is going by feel rather than the actual uh, definitions of where these things are happening. And that is absolutely the last thing I'm doing for tonight. Uh, Y'all, thank you so much for being here. It's been great. I will see you all later.